I think that's a really big portion of this work is the way in which technology allows us to be storytellers again. And, and that's what I try and share with my tribal partners and with the indigenous communities that I may be working with is to take our storytelling tradition and apply it with these new tools. Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. You just heard water scientist and scholar Dr. Kelsey Leonard, assistant professor at the University of Waterloo and citizen of the Shinnecock Indian Nation, reference one of the ways technology helps communicate the interests of indigenous communities in the modern world. Esri's David Gadsden investigates how location intelligence technology combines with indigenous storytelling tradition to support sustainable water and ocean governance. Dr. Leonard, welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. Tabutni, thank you. I'm so happy to be here with you. I wanted to kick off by exploring your experiences as a member of the Shinnecock Indian Nation. You represent the nation, which is located on Long Island in New York, and your role is protecting that nation's interests concerning its dependence on the Atlantic Ocean and its fundamental necessity and your tribe's ability to survive. Can you help us understand that, that context a little bit better? Yes. So in our language, Shinnecock actually means people of the shore, people of the stony shore. And that's really foundational to how we understand our cultural, political, and spiritual existence on this planet in our little pocket of the world on the southern shores of eastern Long Island in in what we call Pominoc. And this has been a territory and a place where we have lived for millennia. Our creation story begins in that place and location. And I think we're really fortunate as Shinnecock people and as a nation to be able to thrive and continue to exist on our ancestral territory. Uh, So what that means for listeners that that may not understand that language is we were never removed. This is the same lands and waters that our ancestors have been on since time immemorial. Historically, we were traditionally whalers. We have a really unique kinship and relationship to the whale uh, and the different marine mammals that that migrate through the mid and North Atlantic Ocean and and come into contact with our our Long Island shores. Fishing, aquaculture, being uh, bay people, fisher people, really just living off the land, living off the water to sustain not only our, our physical needs as human beings, but our cultural sustenance and cultural practices. Can you help us understand the relationship between water and social justice? The citizenship that we have to water and the citizenship that we have to the environment, what some have called ecological citizenship, there within that, there is a duty and a responsibility and a non-contractual responsibility to ensure the stewardship and conservation of the natural world. And in large part, we were all born with that citizen ethic and that citizen environmental ethic, but we've forgotten it along the way and we've lost that connection. So I think that's, that's very formative uh, to understand what it means to, to have honor and dignity and, and humanity is to be connected to water. What are the types of ways that disenfranchised communities can be harmed by not having that access to clean water? Unfortunately, water in, in so many ways around the world, but particularly in, in the global north and what we now know as Canada and the United States, is a pre-existing condition for so many communities of color, marginalized communities, economically disenfranchised communities. And, and that has shown us that not having an adequate access 
to uh, a sufficient quantity and quality of water to meet your daily needs, particularly in a pandemic such as hand washing, has been so devastating to so many families and communities around the world that it, it heightens the injustice that we are seeing related to water and water governance globally. You've used the term uh, water justice. How can that be structured in a way that it could be applicable across many communities out there that are facing these injustices? So the term water justice is really a combination of social and environmental justice as it applies to water governance. So the ways in which we make decisions about water in different societies. So how we ask questions about decisions for water, how we think about the way in which water should be governed, how we even relate to water, something so fundamental and basic as to whether or not we treat it as a natural resource, a commodity, or kin. And if we take that a step further, we, we can kind of break it down to see, okay, well, what are the ways in which water decision-making occurs? And, and there's, there are some key principles and foundations to understanding that within the context of water justice. One is the principle of fairness. Are harms and benefits of the way in which water decision-making occurs fairly distributed? Equity is another principle that looks at, does a group or ecosystem bear a disproportionate burden of injustice? Another foundational principle is participation. What opportunities exist for meaningful uh, participation in the decision-making around water? And then one principle that often isn't discussed that I like to add in, in my work is this concept of relationality. Because I think the principle of relationality really embeds indigenous knowledge within the context of water justice. And in in that sense, that principle asks not only, um, it's not only concerned with the first three principles of fairness, equity, and participation, which are generally centered around human concerns, but relationality asks our ecosystems and our more than human relations accounted for in our restoration efforts and in the ways that we are making decisions about water. And so I think that though that fundamentally conceptualizes water justice and, and how I apply it to the work that I do. Let's talk about your work around the legal protection for water bodies. You advocate for granting water bodies the same rights as persons. So I'm curious how people respond to that view since there is precedent in granting personhood rights to things, corporations being the most obvious example, but how do you extend that to, to water? Well, I will say that there, again, is a growing movement of, of folks globally that are supportive of grants of legal personhood, what might more broadly be termed rights of nature or also known as ecological jurisprudence. Well, in the context of water, it really is about creating legal enforcement mechanisms to support those rights and the rights of the water to exist, flourish, and naturally evolve, which if we take a moment to just think about that, why is that so shocking? What's so obscene about water having the right to exist, flourish, and naturally evolve, but for our human desire for gluttonous consumption and ownership over water? We have this need to, to have this authority and domination over nature, and I question whether that's needed. That stands in stark contrast in a lot of ways to Indigenous philosophy. On Turtle Island, we have a principle of, of the seventh generation to consider every action and in in, in how it might impact seven generations today. Those what some folks call the unborn faces. 
And yet that's not how we make decisions about the water. That's not how we make decisions for water. That's not how we make decisions more broadly for environmental governance in our world today. But maybe it could be. And I think that's where legal personhood comes, comes in. It starts to think about how do we create more equitable co-governance arrangements? How do we think about what water guardianship or, or might look like for, for granting legal personhood? And it really starts to put forward a more holistic approach to how we relate and have responsibilities towards water. How are you seeing indigenous tribal communities take advantage of potentially modern technologies or you know, new levels of engagement to assure their sovereignty and assure their access to the resources they deserve? I think we're taking advantage of technology in so many different spaces from the vast amount of technologies that are available to us as a global population, not just to indigenous people. We are trying to take advantage of them and blend those, what we might call Western technologies, because in large part, they've been developed from a Western conceptualization and and, and sort of epistemological basis, but still taking those technologies, even in their kind of, if we might even call it beta Western form, and then adapting them in a way that is congruent with indigenous cultures and the cultures that they're applying them within to advance a variety of issues, both in the natural resource spaces, but also for social services, thinking about uh, health, the way in which we're, we're using data and to visualize data. I think that's a really big portion of this work is the way in which technology allows us to be storytellers again. And, and that's what I try and share with my tribal partners and with the indigenous communities that I may be working with, to be storytellers and to take our storytelling tradition and apply it in the, with these new tools. And I think for so many of us, that, that's a real point of translation is to say, these tools just give us a new way to be old storytellers again. So one of the examples that I will share with you is I uh, work with Indigenous students at Six Nations Polytechnic in what's currently known as Ontario, Canada. And at this Indigenous higher education institution, with my students, we've worked to really try and connect our ancient history of storytelling to new technologies. And I've been so blown away by a lot of the Indigenous maps that really take Indigenous data, whether that be environmental data, health data, or oral histories from the community and are putting those into visualizations of data that otherwise might sit in an Excel sheet or that might sit on a recording MP3 file in, you know, in a cabinet somewhere. And in this way, I say to my students, these opportunities for story mapping and for using mapping technologies to tell stories are a continuation of a long tradition of storytelling in our Indigenous cultures and communities. And so when I share that with my Indigenous students, it's like a light bulb goes off and it's like there is a space and a place for us to carry on tradition in a digital world and in digital spaces. And there's some cool Twitter hashtags that that we've created like Indigi Spaces or Indigi Place. Where are these Indigenous digital spaces living in online environments? And what does that landscape of Indigenous futurism look like? And I think in a large part, data visualization, story maps that capitalize on Indigenous storytelling methods and those traditions are so powerful and so impactful for our communities. And kind of bringing that home for for listeners that, that may be listening in today, 
students are able to take those maps and share those live experiences on their iPad, on their phone, with their grandmother, with their grandfather that has maybe a little bit of distrust of new technologies, but they see these, these maps and these visualizations that show their, their reserve or reservation or indigenous territory that show the land and the water and, and the creek that they grew up on fishing on. And it just feels so close to home. You're not as mobile as you once were, but to be able to have that technology and shape into, into those places that are so familiar and so comforting is sometimes a really great joy to bring to community members. The human psychology around how we absorb and understand maps is, is that innately westernized? And if so, how do we begin to decolonize cartography and mapping? The short answer is yes, it is innately and deeply westernized. And unfortunately, I think in large part that is due to the rapid evolution of technology as well as the rapid proliferation and globalization of the English language around the world. It has led to us, you know, at the click of a button and a swipe on our phone, being able to have any type of digital map available to us. The ability to, to geolocate, um, really the snap of a finger. And, and that is very powerful, but it also has you know, far reaching ramifications for the potential to replicate you know, ongoing acts of colonialism and a legacy of colonialism in digital spaces to what folks are now calling digital colonialism. And so we also then have to ask, well, in which ways are the maps that we create today and the maps that we use today, maybe we're not even the creators, but we are the users and we're just complicitly using them, in which ways are they colonial representations? Are they advocating for a set of political and colonial ideologies embedded in the, in the map projections and in the map layers. What about places and place names? Um, obviously, prior to you know Westerners arriving in North America, there was a name for uh, everything on these landscapes. How do we reconcile those traditional names with the maps that we're looking at today? I think some cities are doing really great work right now to do that. I do think it needs to it needs to be in some instances localized. I think there are some expressions where there needs to be some federal intervention, but in a lot of ways, the, this does need to be localized. And I'll give one example that happened this past December in Edmonton, a, a city in Canada, put together an advisory board of indigenous women. They decided through the Edmonton City Council that they were going to rename their ward districts with indigenous names. And it's really not even a renaming, it's, it's a reclamation of old names and languages that really need to thrive in the places that they're born out of. So throughout North America and, and potentially other parts of the world, but I'm most familiar with the context of Canada and the United States, because of the legacy of systemic racism in both countries, there are many roads, towns, lakes, rivers, bays, parks, mountains even, that are labeled with racist terminology towards both indigenous uh, and, and black people and other communities of color. And the process by which to rename them and remove them is very, very difficult and can take years. 
And the violence and trauma that that inflicts on that person to have to go through that and fight for that just so that they can be treated as equal under the law and not be dehumanized by the places that they come into contact with is unjust and shouldn't be something that they have to fight for in the United States or Canada. This uh, podcast series is listened to by decision makers and executives across the business sector, governments, large nonprofits. What can we all do? What would you advise these types of institutions that they might engage in to advance your work in water rights and, and advance Indigenous sustainability? Well, I think in large part, it's about forming strong partnerships with the Indigenous nations and communities that your business, NGO, for individuals, your home or, or workspace is located on. You know, really start to get to know the space and places that you are occupying. And I'm consistently surprised that folks are unaware of the Indigenous nations and peoples that call the territories they now occupy home. So I think that's that's a first step is getting to know the land and, and waters that, that you now exist and, and thrive from, from the context and perspective of, of Indigenous peoples who you have stewarded those places for thousands of years, if not longer. So that that's where I would would start is you know if you're if you're in San Diego, who are the you know the tribal nations that are in San Diego County? Come back and say okay, now what does it look like to be in relation with those communities? What does it look like to be supportive of those communities to redistribute the the wealth that you have? And that doesn't that's not just monetary wealth, but that's technological wealth, that's uh, cartographic wealth. It's thinking about what does that redistribution for relationship and reciprocity and responsibility look like in building a really authentic partnership. And then the potential is, is, is limitless for the types of not only technological innovations that you could create as a business or an NGO, but also the ways in which you might be leading the calls for justice and the movements for justice around our world. Dr. Leonard, it has been an education and a tremendous honor to speak with you today. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you again to Bhutani so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. And thanks to Dr. Leonard for explaining how location intelligence technology is being used to address current environmental justice challenges for Indigenous nations. If you liked this episode, please take a moment to rate Esri and the Science of Wear podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about how location intelligence drives transformation and growth, visit esri.com forward slash location intelligence.